In the Hebrew scriptures, there are two distinct and very different portraits of God's Messiah, a suffering servant, but also a kingly son of David. And this has resulted in the Jewish Messiah on the one hand being depicted as a peaceful dying savior. But how does that portrait correlate with the other picture of Messiah in the scriptures as a triumphant conquering king? The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. All over the world, politicians seem to be the least trusted profession. People long in their hearts for a leader who has the people's interest at heart. And so many times we're disappointed by somebody who's been elected who doesn't keep his promises. However, God's Redeemer, known in the scriptures as the Mashiach, will be one who doesn't disappoint who keeps his word in all of his promises. Many of the Hebrew prophets predicted that such a fine, trustworthy, and unique person would come. In fact, Jewish tradition refers to two redeemers, both called Messiah. In fact, the Hebrew word for Messiah or Mashiach means anointed one, anointed with holy anointing oil. These two messiahs prophesied in the scriptures are called Mashiach ben David, the messiah who will be the descendant of David, a heavenly figure sometimes called the son of man. But there's also a portrait in the prophecies referred to by the rabbis as Mashiach ben Yosef in Hebrew, or the messiah son of Joseph, as foreseen by the life of the patriarch Joseph, son of Jacob, and the matriarch, Rachel. Some regard Messiah ben Joseph as a rabbinic invention, but others defend the view, claiming its origins are, in fact, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. But now, when the resurrected Jesus ascended to heaven, as recorded in the book of Acts in the New Testament, Two mysterious witnesses dressed in white exhorted the disciples who watched Jesus depart into the clouds. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, not another Messiah, but they said, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. That plainly means that upon Jesus' return, he will return to earth in the clouds with great glory as God's appointed Davidic regent. He's already fulfilled the suffering servant role as Messiah, son of Joseph, who came to die to save sinners. When he returns, he will next fulfill the Daniel chapter 7 prophecy of the glorious conquering Messiah that I've been speaking of in recent weeks. Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 13, describes the Messiah as one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he was given dominion, glory, and kingship that the people of every nation and language should serve him. 
But during the time of Jesus' ministry on earth at his first coming, it was understandable that many of his contemporaries hoped that the physical messianic kingdom of David would be reestablished. But instead, he died to make atonement for the iniquity of his people and for the whole world. First, he said it was necessary to fulfill all of the suffering servant prophecies of humiliation, rejection, and even death, those prophecies found in the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah's portrait says, Messiah's appearance was so marred, he was beyond human resemblance. So should he startle many nations because he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one, Isaiah said, from whom men hide their faces because he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah says. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes, we are healed. Hallelujah. In the New Testament, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, did not proclaim a superhero. He referred to this messianic suffering servant prophecy, Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And indeed, that's the suffering Messiah of Isaiah chapter 53, which testified in advance that he would be oppressed, afflicted, yet he would not open his mouth. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. He would not open his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him, to make him an offering for sin, because Isaiah said he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he would bear the sin of many and make intercession for transgressors. All of this, of course, was a prophecy of exactly what would happen with Jesus. He came as the expected Messiah, but was rejected and executed on the cross. But that was God's plan to save mankind. So in the meantime, what happened to all of the triumphant messianic prophecies of Messiah? Why didn't Jesus fulfill them all? Does that mean that he is disqualified? No, it means that all of those prophecies were put on hold to await his glorious second coming, which he said would happen. And in the meantime, he's been very busy as the savior of the world. The Lord of the harvest has been commissioning and sending his disciples to preach the gospel to every nation for the past 2000 years. Well, traditional Judaism teaches that the Messiah is a God-fearing, pious Jew who is both a Torah scholar and a great leader. And he's to be a descendant directly of King David, anointed as the new Jewish king. However, also according to traditional Judaism, there is that Mashiach ben Joseph who would be killed during the war against evil. Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, indeed first came and suffered and died for the sake of Israel and the nations in the ultimate war against evil and sin. Yet, 
Messiah ben David will completely fulfill Messianic expectations as anticipated by the Jewish sages when Jesus returns. He will come again to restore the Jewish temple, to cleanse it, to set up his kingdom on earth, and to unite all the nations under his rule. In that day, the Bible prophesies the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Bible scholars have found scores and scores of ways that the patriarch Joseph prefigured Jesus. And this is all about Messiah ben Yosef, Joseph. For example, in Genesis 37, verse 3, Joseph is called the beloved son of his father Jacob. Jesus, Yeshua, is also the only begotten, the beloved of the Father, in whom God was well pleased. Joseph in the Torah prophetically foresaw himself as the deliverer of Israel through dreams and the savior of the world. Likewise, Jesus understood himself to be the savior of Israel and the world. But Joseph's brothers hated him and couldn't speak kindly to him. They disbelieved in his mission. They conspired to kill him and stripped him of his coat, mocking him. Jesus, Yeshua, was likewise hated without a cause. Joseph's brothers refused his rule and envied him. And the New Testament tells us it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to be executed. However, Judah amongst the sons of Jacob promoted the idea that Joseph's life should be ransomed. And it's no coincidence that Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah and became the redeemer of the world to ransom us from sins. Joseph's brother sold him for shekels of silver, as did Judas, who sold Jesus. Joseph was raised up from the pit. Jesus, Yeshua, was raised from the dead. Joseph was sold as a slave. And Jesus, likewise, took upon himself the form of a suffering servant. God allowed Joseph to be taken into Egypt to save his family in the future. And Jesus was also led by God into Egypt to avoid death and wrath from King Herod. Joseph's tunic was covered with blood, as was the robe of Jesus. The Lord was with Joseph in humiliation and prospered him, and God was in Jesus. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but didn't sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Joseph was later exalted in the book of Genesis to Pharaoh's throne, and he was given a foreign bride. Isn't it amazing that Jesus' followers are called the bride of Messiah from every nation? God sent Joseph ahead to his brethren to Egypt to save them during the time of famine. And God sent Jesus to earth to be Lechem HaChaim, the bread of life. As a disguised Egyptian, Joseph later tested his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Even today, Jesus is disguised to the Jewish people because of a partial blindness that has temporarily come upon them, according to Romans chapter 11. But after testing his brothers to see if they indeed underwent teshuva, repentance, Joseph finally revealed himself to his brethren. And we see that in Genesis chapter 45. 
Likewise, during the coming great tribulation of testing, Jesus will open the eyes of Israel to recognize him. And this will be like life from the dead, just as Jacob, Israel, saw his son Joseph alive from what he thought was dead. So Jacob adopted into the family of Israel Joseph's two sons who were born in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. This adoption was a prophetic picture of the time that Jesus foretold when there will be one shepherd over one flock. There will be one olive tree of God representing the redeemed from among both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the popular tendency is to think only of Messiah ben David and not Messiah ben Yosef. But the Christian view accounts for both portraits in one person. These two prophetic strains are named for both Joseph and David because both of them suffered first, but they emerged victorious in the end. Joseph was lost to Israel. He was considered to be dead. Eventually, however, he had a second coming when he was returned back into the lives of his brothers who once had rejected him and when he was reunited with his father Jacob, Israel. Think about that. But now I hope you're seeing more clearly that both faces, both portraits of Messiah, are seen in the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, I want us to consider the book of the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 9 paints a portrait of the Messiah as a humble king of peace. And throughout her history, Israel certainly had her share of good kings and bad kings. But Zechariah 9.9 foretells a good messianic king who is not a great conqueror. That chapter says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He goes on to say he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, Zechariah encourages Israelites to be joyful and excited because the promised one being sent from God as Israel's long-awaited king will first come not as a mighty conqueror, not as a superhero. I want you to note that this messianic king is not a warrior. Rather, he's portrayed as meek. Yet, nevertheless, he's to be king over all the earth with world authority. But coming uniquely in a humble fashion, riding on a baby donkey, as opposed to a big chariot or war horse. He will proclaim peace to all the nations and not just to Israel. And this king doesn't come with an army. Yet in Zechariah 9, that's exactly what's promised. However, if we go a few chapters further into Zechariah chapter 14, there's a portrait of Messiah as a warrior king. And this is quite a different picture from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 14 reads, God speaking, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. 
and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley and so on and so forth. This picture is of a conquering king in battle. And in Zechariah 14, we read, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. So in chapter nine, this king is humble, but in chapter 14, he's a conqueror coming in judgment, meeting out wrath to Israel's enemies. Mysteriously, the commentaries say that this passage seems to suggest that the Messiah King is none other than the Lord God Almighty, God coming to fight on behalf of his people. In any case, we're presented with a dramatically different picture of the King in Zechariah 14. So the commentaries ask, does this King who reigns over all the earth come gently, riding on a donkey in peace? Or does he come in great wrath, conquering in battle? Does, after all, the prophet Zechariah contradict himself? Well, this is a big puzzle for Jewish scholars. And there are other seemingly divergent pictures of Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures as well. Micah chapter 5, for example, tells us he's to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But in Daniel chapter 7, as I've mentioned previously, the prophet tells us Messiah will ride on the clouds of heaven and the Messiah will be cut off and killed as predicted in Daniel chapter 9. So is he going to come in regal splendor and reign forever as Isaiah 9 foretells or will he be killed? Is he the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 or is he the royal king portrayed as Messiah, God's anointed king, as in Psalm 2. Well, the only way that the rabbis could resolve this puzzle or these two seemingly opposite pictures of Messiah was that there must be two Messiahs, the Messiah Ben Joseph, who would come and suffer, and the Messiah, son of David, who would arrive as conquering king. I submit that we need to consider the possibility of the truth that one individual fits the bill of both portraits in two separate comings. In fact, this is the position presented in the New Testament by Jewish authors who lived in the first century. They certainly believed that the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures describe one Messiah, a great king who was to come twice, first as a servant king, then later as conqueror. They believed that Jesus, Yeshua, fulfilled Moshiach ben Yosef with a life marked by humility, meekness, and peace under intense suffering. As Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 27, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And near the close of his life on earth, Jesus instructed his disciples to find a donkey with its cult. Just before Passover, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the cult of the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that was given more than 500 years earlier. And the people shouted and rejoiced, as in Matthew 21.9, Hosanna to the son of David, they cried. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
to translate, the people were shouting, save us. They understood that their king had come and that he was offering powerful, life-changing salvation to those who would welcome him. In fact, the name Yeshua, Jesus, means God saves. Although Jesus didn't at that time usher in an age of peace on earth, as many had hoped, he did offer the gift of peace with God to anyone willing to put their trust in him and in the atonement for sin that he would offer through his death on the cross and resurrection. You see, according to the prophecies, it was necessary for him to die to achieve atonement for the sins of the world. But he knew that he would rise again because he possessed the power of an indestructible life. This was his testimony in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. He said, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay down my life. And he said, I have authority to take it up again. And the disciples who witnessed Jesus' resurrection were willing to die to proclaim his resurrection. That's how much they believed in it. They were eyewitnesses. And now today, millions of people all around the world are awaiting his second coming. According to the prophecies in Zechariah, it will be a day of judgment, but also a day of deliverance for Israel. Then, according to Zechariah 14, 16, the survivors from all the nations that previously attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, during the annual Feast of Tabernacles. I was sorry, I was disappointed, really, to read recently an article written by an Arab brother who decried the fact that thousands of Christians are already coming up annually to worship Jesus in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. This Arab pastor reduced the Christians' pilgrimages to nothing but a political movement to stand with the nation of Israel. But he and so many pastors of churches today are tragically simply guilty of unbelief. Unbelief about all of these end-time Bible prophecies. Because Zechariah says Jesus will literally return to Jerusalem and chapter 14 says nations will literally come up to Jerusalem to worship King Messiah. So why not have faith and begin to do that now? It's not a political movement, but a faith movement by Bible believers. And even this year, a delegation came up from Egypt during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was highly prophetic, seeing them marching in the streets in the Jerusalem March because Zechariah 14, 17 specifically mentions that Israel's traditional enemy, Egypt, will come up to Jerusalem to worship or else Egypt will suffer the consequences, drought. So I want us to see that King Messiah first came nearly 2,000 years ago to offer his kingship peacefully to Israel and to the nations. We see two pictures of the king coming once as a man of peace, and then coming again as a conquering king. Two redeemers, one suffering, and the second fulfilling the traditional messianic role, all in one person, Jesus. Without a doubt, these passages should make us ask, is it necessary to believe in two messiahs, or is it possible that one redeemer came 
to live amongst us 2,000 years ago, and that he's coming again to be enthroned as the victorious, reigning King Jesus of the house of David. Those who believe Yeshua is the Messiah testify to how he fulfills all of these expectations, past, present, and future. Because of what he did in his first coming, we can be assured that he will return. He will keep his word. The only question remains, are we prepared to welcome him as our king now? So I believe it's important to review and to outline the biblical timeline of the last days as being the most consistent in the Bible. First of all, because of Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah the first time around, the establishment of the Lord's Davidic Messianic Kingdom was delayed, resulting in the desolation of Israel's temple and for the land to be desolate for nearly 2,000 years. However, during the present age, the risen Lord Jesus has been building his church, consisting of the one new man, a spiritual hybrid of Jew and Gentile, grafted together into God's olive tree. And in our day, God has also been reconstituting the nation of Israel in preparation for the second coming. Then in John chapter 14, Jesus said he will personally come again to take his disciples to the dwelling places that he's been preparing for us in his Father's house in heaven. This plan to receive us in a sudden return like a thief in the night is according to the customs of a Galilean Jewish wedding. This return to steal away his bride, his disciples, has always historically been considered as imminent. It can happen at any moment. Nothing must be fulfilled first. Jesus prophesied in his Olivet End Time briefing before his sacrificial death that his second coming to the earth to rule from his ancestor, King David's throne, will be preceded by a period of unprecedented tribulation for Israel and the nations. But this time of unparalleled trouble will culminate in Israel's acceptance and welcoming of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus will come in the clouds for his bride, but Jesus will return in the clouds to earth along with his bride, the true church of saved individual members throughout the ages. And then he will establish the messianic kingdom in the nation of regathered Israel. That messianic kingdom will include Israel, the Isaiah 19 highway of nations, and all the saved nations from amongst the Gentiles. So let's listen for the sudden sounding of the shofar of God and the appearing of Messiah to snatch his remnant church to glory. That's the blessed hope of every believer, causing us to wake up and to stay alert. Let's watch on the walls of Jerusalem because our redemption is drawing near. As we close today, I want to ask, are you ready and watching eagerly for the Lord's imminent appearing? Belief in the future advent of the Messiah is one of the fundamental requirements of the Jewish faith. So how much more for Christians should we be watching for the second coming of Jesus? The Jewish sage Maimonides wrote, anyone who does not believe in Messiah or who does not wait for his arrival has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses. So if the Jewish people are still awaiting Messiah, Christians should especially be awaiting the second advent of Jesus. 
So do you know him already in your heart? That's so important. The Bible teaches that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And so if we can help you in your spiritual growth, let's stay in touch on the social media. Or we invite you to explore our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to review our ebooks or sign up for our free magazine, Exploits. You see, when we pray earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for the return and we're hastening the return of Jesus. Until then, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.